Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an Air Force, against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Mr. President, thank you very much. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. Is it, can you please clarify what they have told you about whether that will happen or not? That is not true. They, so, did, not, they didn't, did not reach that conclusion. So what is the level of confidence that they have that it will not collapse? The Afghan government and leadership has to come together. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government in place. And do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling... None whatsoever. Zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy. Six, if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the, South, the North Vietnamese Army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comparable. So the question now is, where do they go from here? That, the jury is still out. But the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Thank you again for joining us for the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton, and today we're going to be talking about our initial reactions to the fall of Kabul. And as history teachers, um, we wanted to bring this up as a point of comparison as to similarities with the fall of Saigon, but also look at the historical perspective as that Afghanistan What's the writing on the walls? Is it one of these rules of history that this is a place where empires go to die? Before we dig into all of that and just some general hot takes and some initial thoughts about what's happening, I'm going to introduce my uh, guests who are here today, uh, my two mates, Stephen Lascock and Chris Owen. Um, Steve, do you mind giving us a little bit of an intro? Yeah, thanks, Blake. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm the ancient history teacher or ancient history specialist at Tamworth High School. Uh, I run junior classes 7 and 10, elective history, and also have a year 11 and 12 workload. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Steve. And Chris, the tech guru, how are you going? Very good, and it's good to be joining you via the interweb. But, uh, yeah, basically, I've been teaching modern history for the best part of 25 years, so I'm old enough to have lived through a lot of topics when they're teaching, which is a little bit scary. Rightio. And let's just start straight with you, Chris, and I'll have my first question for you that I had a little clip of a speech from Joe Biden starting at the beginning of this podcast, which we're not going to hear, but the listeners are going to hear, where Joe Biden says, and I quote, the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. There is going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of the embassy of the United States <laughs> from Afghanistan. This was Joe Biden, July uh, 2021. What are your initial reactions to that? 
Well, I saw a photo this morning because the uh, reference that he's talking to was a very famous photo in 1975 of a great big Chinook not able to land on the roof of the embassy in Saigon. So the chopper pilot's able to manoeuvre it uh, and hover it above the embassy to get the last of the embassy staff on. And there's a photo of Kabul with a Chinook, the exact same make and model flying over what I assume is probably the American embassy there. And um, side by side, those two photos are incredibly scary. And I get what the president's saying, that obviously 1975 was different when Vietnam, uh, Vietnam fell to the communists. But if we think about it, by 1975, the rest of the world no longer feared communism as they did 20 years before when the war first started. And I think we're in the same boat now. The world doesn't fear terrorism like it did 20 years ago when all the hype was about. But I know you know a fair bit about that, Blake. You can chime in there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I would 100% agree with you. I do an elective history topic talking about the world, uh, the war on terror. And yeah, this idea that initially 2001, you're sparking off this period of time where terror, terrorism is the buzzword, where similar to, again, if you're a kid and you're listening to this and you need some sort of comparison, like the way that COVID is the buzzword today and you're walking through the park and it's all people are talking about, um, it had that same sort of feeling. Steve, you were, saying to me earlier that you were in your 11th year of being a police officer which you were before you were a teacher a lot older than me i was a kid in primary school when this first happened so i have a completely different perspective um what's your reactions to the president's remarks or uh the war on terror if you want to talk a little bit about that thanks for bringing up my age mate. <laughs> oh no problem um, yeah, age look. is wisdom <laughs> I think the biggest thing out of this, uh, if you want to compare this to Vietnam, is the Americans had an outcome with this one, whereas Vietnam, they didn't. Their outcome here was to kill bin Laden, and they killed bin Laden, and that is what they're going to hang their hat on for centuries to come. They'll constantly refer back to it that they won what they needed to win, whereas in Vietnam, it was all very blurry about what they were trying to achieve. Uh, my, my recollections of the day I lived in a police at Broken Hill, and my brother rang me up early in the morning and said they've just ploughed planes into the Twin Towers. And I was a little bit oblivious as to what the Twin Towers were until I turned the television on and, and just to get that recognition of what was happening. And uh, we actually saw, my wife and I were lying in bed and we saw the second plane hit live. And you're basically glued to the television for a whole week. You could not get away from the telly. Um, just the images, the, the police and the fire brigade running in and not coming out again, um, the actual buildings falling, the, the people just first in, in shock and disbelief, which turned to anger. Um, I have been to the 9-11 Memorial uh, since then, about four or five years ago, uh, and, and just to try and connect with the whole thing because it's still quite alien. Uh, but when that anger really surfaced in America, and you basically had most of America signing up. Uh, we had NFL players leaving their careers, signing up as soldiers, army rangers, whatever, because they just wanted to get over in the Middle East and point the finger at someone. Um, they were talking about their weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we found out later a, a lot of the, um, the evidence had been fabricated by the Americans to go in, uh, but they picked a target. They picked a target in Iraq and ultimately Afghanistan. They went over there and, and 
they'll, they've been there for the last 20 years. Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add on that, your initial reactions? This is a, a great chance for kids to hear about different perspectives from people from, I guess, different viewpoints. Absolutely. The older generation talk about where they were when man landed on the moon and the JFK assassination. I guess for people my era, it is uh, like when Lady Di was killed in the car crash. And of course, uh, I vividly remember like Steve, my uh, neighbour who was a teacher as well, ringing up and say, turn on the TV. And like Steve, I was watching live when the, um, the second plane hit. We had a modern history class the next morning and we were able to speak at length what this actually meant. And um, I was a Lieutenant in the Army Reserve at that stage. So we were up watching even more intensely going, does this mean we are mobilized? And the and I've still got them front page of the Daily Telegraph the next morning was, you know, just war, W-A-R and great big um, black lettering going, you know, well, we're at war. And unfortunately for America as well, we're not sure who we are at war with yet. And I remember um, a Southern Senator demanding we nuke them and of course, the question came back, well, who's them? Who are we going to nuke? And he's like, I don't care, just nuke someone. You know, they're like an angry ant nest that America came out fighting and swinging and was looking for anyone. And so at that stage, America was scrambling to get together what they called the coalition of the willing. You may remember, and quite a few Western nations were a bit reluctant to, um, to join in America. Australia was one that went in looking for these weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. But at the time, no one questioned it. No one even thought that what we were doing was wrong. And a bit like you ask the um, look at the footage of those soldiers that are in Vietnam very early on, the Australian soldiers say in 1965, 66, 67, they're saying, well, we're here to defeat communism and I believe what I'm doing is right. And it's a, it's a great thing that we did. The time 1975 came around and you know Vietnam's fallen to communism. Do we need to go back in and support them? It's no, no Western leader would um, have fallen on their sword and gone back in. And I think that's going to happen here that we'll see poor old Afghanistan is going to be basically sort of ignored by the Western world. And there's all sorts of human rights abuses that they're worried are going to return under the hands of the Taliban that um, it's almost political suicide for an American president or Australian politician to say, we're going back in boots and all. So there's some great parallels to uh, what happened in 75 to what's happening right now. Yeah, they surely have, like, this was an ongoing, like, festering issue for the United States. Um, the same speech, which I didn't include at the beginning, Joe Biden is talking about the fact that they have been involved for the last 20 years in this region of the world. Like he was involved, like not the president, but involved with previous administrations. He's seen the way that the intelligence community had come up with false information to try to get us involved, to try to get that target, which both of you have brought up, like, like hit the nail on the head. This idea that the United States at their peak power, this is peak power for the United States, the Soviet Union, like they're gone so there's no one to oppose them they feel like they can't be touched um this is during the like the dot-com boom so the economy's like going up and everything's great for the united states and then bam you wake up one morning watching your your buddy fox news or whatever and just the world's collapsing around you it's like how could this happen 
And rather than deal with this complicated idea about what terrorism is and the history that these terrorists are perhaps using, because, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. It's (laughs) it's like, who do we nuke? Yeah. Who are we going after? Like, we're the biggest, baddest army on the planet. And we're not going to sit around and kumbaya about this. We need someone to invade. Um, And they initially wanted to go Iraq, as I said in the little precursor episode, but they didn't have the information or they didn't have the evidence or they couldn't manufacture the evidence in the initial stages. So it had to be Afghanistan. And then eventually we got into Iraq on those, I guess, uh, fabricated uh, WMD charges which we've been talking a little bit about. Um, Do either of you have anything else you want to add to that? Because otherwise we might go to the fall of Kabul for the uh, second part of our discussion. Just a little bit of history. um, You go, Chris. Oh, I was just going to say just quickly that American involvement in Afghanistan stems back 20 years, but Afghanistan's been a war-torn country for a lot longer than that. So the Afghans themselves were fighting the Russians prior to that. Just like in Vietnam, Australia went in um, in a big way in 65, but the, the Vietnamese had been fighting since the end of World War II. So there's some parallels there that while we talk about Afghanistan for the last 20 years, from an Afghan perspective, it's basically been a war for a lot longer than that. Absolutely. Steve, you want to add some context to that, being the ancient history yeah. teacher? Well, that, that's exactly right. From an ancient perspective, you've got the, the Achaemenid Empire, so Persia, which is back two and a half thousand years, they ruled that area. Then we're going to have Alexander the Great coming in. And since that time, uh, because the Golden Road that uh, was a central part of the Persian society, uh, becomes a Silk Road that goes all the way across to China. So Afghanistan is in a, a strategically pivotal location for all of these societies who want to get hold of it. And since Alexander the Great, you've had over a dozen different societies living in that area. Um, the different religions, you've had Zoroastrianism, uh, Buddhism, uh, Islam, throughout all these centuries, it's, it's such a, a fluid country when you go in there, you don't know who to point the finger at. It's all it's all tribal, it's all cultural. Um, I, I honestly believe we're going to hear about some human rights abuses. Afghanistan will start the news for a little bit of time, but ultimately I think it's yesterday's news. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got that down in my notes as well, talking about that idea that it is the graveyard for these empires and that point that you brought up is the diversity is like that whilst they do have this government that continues to try to be reformed, you've got all these clans which are up in the hills. And if you look at a map of the topography, it's just deserts, hills, and where you can have all these like little outposts and all these clans are run by a bloke who is generally a king in his own right. And you have these tribes being united together to form this resistance force. And I truly believe just like the Viet Cong, that that's the way they see it, that they don't see themselves as, oh, I've got something else coming up. I'll just get rid of that. Sorry about the that. Only, the main, you're right, the main danger I see from that is 
as we knew from 20 years ago, we had the Taliban, then we had Al-Qaeda was like a hardcore version of the Taliban, then ISIS became a hardcore version of Al-Qaeda. If it keeps it at the Taliban level, the, uh, outside of the way they, they run their, their strict regime, they're probably going to be the easiest ones to deal with on a political level than uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I think Al-Qaeda has gone by the by, but ISIS is still operating in parts of the Middle East and also in Africa. Rightio. Um, Chris, do you feel comfortable maybe giving a quick overview again for our kids who are, and our students who are listening to this and Steve's given a really good, sophisticated overview. Um, who are ISIS? We're talking about Al-Qaeda. We're talking about the Taliban. Who's ISIS? Yeah, so basically ISIS is um, another one of these, I guess, groups without a homeland that operate and really despised Westerners sticking their nose into their business. One thing America never did at the fall of the Twin Towers was go into the Hall of Mirrors and have a look at itself and say, well, why did they attack us? Why did they have to go out of their way? What have we done on a global scale to upset these these groups to this extent? And America's not very good at reflecting and um, looking inward. Instead, it's a case of, well, we'll just take the fight back to them. So ISIS are yeah, very much anti-Western, no particular homeland, so there's little pockets of them everywhere pushing to um, promote yeah, anti-Western sentiment throughout the world. And we've even seen the crazy person in Parramatta that shot the poor police accountant as he left from work had had links to that so um you know australia is definitely not immune to this um this anti-western group for want of a better word is that your assessment of it blake yeah absolutely and i i think what we want the kids to take away is that yes the americans needed it to be a physical place that you could send an army to to have some sort of result whereas at a more sophisticated level it was across borders across the entire world. So that's why you could have terrorist attacks in Europe. That's why you could have terrorist attacks or resistance in the United States or in Australia. It's it's people see this and they identify with the cause. It's not a foreign like army. It just happens to be that the, I guess, its roots or its base or its leadership are in Afghanistan. Um, um, I might go to Steve because we were talking a little bit about this at the beginning to get into our second part. Steve, why did the American plans for leaving Afghanistan, right or wrong, why did it go so poorly? Like, why didn't it go to plan based on what we've seen over the last couple of days, do you reckon? I don't think it's that far off plan. They set a date, they committed to a date. Uh, they've just been pushed out a little bit earlier. Uh, they have to leave. They ultimately have to leave. They've spent trillions of dollars over there. They've lost countless lives. Um, They've trained up an army of 300,000 Afghan nationals to be an army. They've equipped them with uh, modern small arms, helicopters, tanks, thousands of Hummers, uh, prepared them for uh, the last couple of days. Um, When you look at the Afghan government, it's naturally been seen as quite corrupt for uh, quite a long time now. The Taliban, when they first popped up, 
they try to stop all that from happening. They've provided security. Uh, it's just a lot of religious extremism. Um, the Afghan government, uh, their army outnumbered the Taliban four to one. They're estimating the Taliban's about 75,000. We've got 300,000 trained Afghan soldiers. Uh, the government, large elements of their army was not being paid. So they just said, well, why are we fighting? And they basically, when the Taliban walked in, they just said, we're going to come across to you guys. Yeah, wow. And that was like a, a part that I missed with the whole media onslaught and all the videos and all the pictures and all the hot takes, which is that, yeah, the soldiers weren't being paid. And you could think, or you would think that that would be in Joe Biden's mind that the government's going to pay the army, which we so heavily invested in, like... Mm. They're going to want to hold on to power, and I guess, guess they just didn't. That corruption's yeah. there, or whatever. Look at the Rush, the uh, sorry, the Germans going into Russia in World War Two. We're not going to give you warm winter uniforms that'll make you fight harder and try and end the campaign earlier. And how did that work out? Yeah, exactly. Soldiers all throughout history, they they weren't getting paid, and they just down tools and go back to their farms and stuff because that's that's what they know, and they know it's safe that way. The same things happened here. Their 300,000 army has just dissolved. Absolutely. Well, the exact same thing happened in Vietnam. The Americans left the um, South Vietnamese army, the ARVN. They left them with everything to keep up the fight when they started Vietnamization uh, in the early 70s. The best technology, the best small arms, the best equipment. The one thing that they couldn't leave them with was the will to fight and I think the same thing has happened here that if you're an Afghani albeit if you're a South Vietnamese in 1975 who do you hate more do you hate the corrupt government backed by a big foreign power or do you hate your poor bloody impoverished brethren who just happen to follow a different slightly different philosophy for you and I think that's what's happened here apart from not getting paid that as the Taliban come you know, reigning in the um, the American-backed Afghan army are just, well, they're my fellow countrymen. We might have a slightly different opinion, but, geez, I tell you what, it's a lot more in common with these guys than the Americans who've been here. So that will to fight, that will to take up the anti, um, anti-terrorism slant that America drives home so hard 20 years ago, it's just not there. The, the will to fight is just not there. Absolutely. No sovereign country wants to be occupied full stop and that's got to be that's got to be point number one of like the art of war really and that we've got to keep in mind um why do you think and chris will keep it with you and this will be our last question why do you think and we were talking about this yesterday which is why i want to bring it up why are there hot takes or why are there people saying that like this is disgraceful or like soldiers died in vain and all this other stuff why would people want to be taking that angle and again um i was quite impressed with scott morrison his stance on sunrise a few mornings ago when he said no australian soldier has ever died in vain in any conflict and i think that's quite a, a positive stance to, to put on our military but the idea of stopping the taliban and it never happened, well, what was the point? 
And don't you worry, there was plenty of Vietnam vets in the late 70s into the 80s is going, well, what was all that about? I was sent to fight in a foreign country. I was conscripted. I didn't even ask to do it. I did my civic duty. I came back and I was spat on by members of the public. What the hell's going on? I'm sure there's probably a few Afghan vets asking themselves the same, that, um, you know, what was the whole point? And I get what Steve said, that to get rid of um, Osama bin Laden, the terrorist leader, tick, tick, we can tick that off. But to, you know, maintain a Western-friendly government in there was probably on the, the back burner. But, yeah, occupying, aside from occupying the place full-time, they were never going to be able to win the hearts and minds um, of the locals to basically go around to the American way of thinking. All right, go, Steve. <laughs> Final thoughts, mate. What are you... What are you thinking from all of this? Classic scene out of Life of Brian. What have the Romans ever done for us? I'll turn around <laughs> and say, what have, the, what have the Taliban done for us? Well, it's safe to walk the streets at night. Yeah. So it's, just, it, it's, yeah, it's become a footnote already. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be talking about little bits of it, but ultimately, Afghan will just be a, the old cliche footnote in history. Absolutely. Rightio, we're going to wrap it up there. I'm sure we could continue to talk about it, our predictions for what happens next or anything, but we want to keep it tight to hear. If you're interested and you're listening to these podcasts, we're going to have some students on. I'm talking to Steve about maybe getting some kids from Oxley to come on. I know he's got a huge class and we might expand this beyond. Tamworth High, mate. Tamworth High. Get it right. I was about to say, you guys somewhere else, Steve. <laughs> Tamworth High. Oh, no. There you go. I can hear the comments coming in from our three listeners already. You should get this right. <laughs> Radio from Town with High. But yeah, hopefully we can expand it. I've really liked this chat and it's it's good to do something like this rather than just being, you know, a bloody lockdown lecturer. Here, here. Thanks for inviting us in, Blake. It's um yeah, interesting to get other lovers of history's thoughts on and um We'll see how it unfolds over the coming months in terms of refugees and see if we can draw a few more parallels about to what's unfolding with this crisis. Yeah, terrific chat, Blake. Really appreciated it. Rightio. Thank you, guys, and I will talk to you later.